Lord, what a glorious inheritance that is that we just sang about. We look forward to that time when with all of the saints from all of history past, for thousands of years of every tribe and tongue and nation and people will be gathered to sing praise in one place. How we look forward to that time, Lord. And right now we are waiting. We're waiting for that day. We're waiting in the already but not yet. That is the already your kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has begun and it is continuing to grow and bear fruit throughout the world. And we look forward though because we're in the not yet as well. What we see is not the fullness by any means of what you have in store for those who trust and love you. So hasten that day, Lord. We We pray, come, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, to our presence right now through the preaching of your word, through the movement of the Holy Spirit as he speaks in your word, Teach us and instruct us, comfort us and edify us and train us in righteousness, we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus Christ passionately loves his church. Can I get an amen? Jesus Christ passionately loves his church, doesn't he? She's called the temple of the living God, and he is the chief cornerstone. She is called his flock, and he, her gentle, tender shepherd. She is called his body, and he, her head. She is called his bride, and he, her nurturing, cherishing husband, who loves her as his own flesh. He was humbled to the point of death for her, He suffered the wrath of God and took it on himself, drank every ounce of that cup for her. He was raised and he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father, where now today he lives, interceding for her, his church, praying for her that she might prevail. Because before he left, he made a promise to his church that he would build her and that the gates of hell itself would not prevail against her. And when history comes to an end, he will return and he will dwell in the new Jerusalem that we just sang about with his church forever. Yes, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ passionately loves his church. And it's out of that love, that fierce, true love, that this world apart from him knows nothing about It's out of that love that he cares for his church's purity, his church's holiness, the holiness without which none of us will see the Lord. He knew that the gates of hell would try indeed to prevail against her. He knew that, but he said they won't. He knew that that, that the, the devil, the one who hates Christ and all that Christ stands for or all all that Christ is and all that Christ is doing, I should say, the devil would pull out every scheme he could possibly try against the church to prevail, and he would fail. Sometimes those, those things would come from the outside, hardship and disaster and persecution, those things listed in Romans 8, 
even those who would kill her because she believes in Christ. But also, and usually much more insidiously, those schemes come from within. Those schemes come from within through the words of those who would distort and twist the gospel to say something other than what it says, who would have 50% or 75% or 99% of the truth, but one fatal lie mixed in. From those who are divisive and would push other agendas that are not central to the gospel and say that they are. From those who, through immorality and sin, start to blur the lines between what is Christ's church supposed to look like and what does the world look like? Who would blur those lines so now it's not quite so distinct the holy calling that the church has. When these things happen, when heresies and schisms or divisions and immorality enter the church, how does the church respond? How does the church deal with sin? This is the subject of the passage that we were looking at last week and we continue to look at today. It's in many ways a difficult passage, and yet it is such an important passage because the church must look different from the world. And so, because we're all sinners, we all sin. And what, does the church, what is the church supposed to do when that happens? Well, let's read our passage today from Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Please follow along. Jesus speaking to his disciples. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Last week, I told you there are four principles that I want to draw out from this passage about how the church deals with sin. I covered the first one last week, and we spent a while on it because it is so important, and that point was that we are, as Christ's church, to develop a culture of discipline. That is, because we're all sinners and we know we're all sinners and we all want to grow in holiness, as Proverbs, uh, as Proverbs 12, 1 says, in fact, I'm not going to try and quote it from memory, uh, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. We love discipline because we need discipline because we know we all are sinners and we need to grow to be like Christ. And so there should be this there should be this culture of discipline among us where I come to you and you come to me and we address each other's sins where we see that isn't right. You're not following the Lord in this way and that is a, a means that the Lord uses to pull us back onto the path of true discipleship. That's why I've been calling it a culture of discipline. This is When we talk about church discipline, our, our minds just like to go to principle four, which we'll get to today, the act of casting someone out of the church. But that's not where it begins, and that's not 99% of church discipline. Church discipline is individuals going to one another with the gospel of truth and confronting one another about our sins. That's church discipline. 
and that needs to be there for any of the rest of these to, to make sense. So this week, I want, to have, I want to cover the last three principles. And then throughout the sermon, I'm going to make various applications or implications, I could say, for what we have been talking about on the, covenant, the subject of covenant membership. So here's principle two. Principle one was develop a culture of discipline. Principle two, the right motive, restoration. So if you're writing down, it's the right motive, colon, restoration. When you go to your brother or your sister to confront sin, your motive in doing so, as we, we, talk, we started to touch on this a little bit last week, your motive is of utmost importance. As it is, like we know, in everything that we do in our Christian lives. The motive, the heart behind it. Let's read verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now this is what I want us to pay attention to. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So this should be your motive, that he listened to you and that you gain your brother. Now we have to look closely at that phrase, if he listens to you, because listen is used four times in this passage, in these four verses. First it talks about your brother listening to you, and then if he doesn't listen to you, he's supposed to listen to your, you and your witnesses, and then he's supposed to listen to the church. So what does it mean when he's supposed to listen to you? What does that, what does that connotate? Well, since you're confronting him about a sin, then there is a very specific way that he should be listening to you. Namely, confessing the sin and then asking forgiveness from God and whomever he has offended and anyone else that it has affected and then repenting, turning from that sin back into the way of holiness, forsaking it and following the safe path of the Lord. And if that doesn't happen, he hasn't listened. So that's what it means by Listen it doesn't just mean it going in one ear and it registering in his brain. That's not listening according to scripture. And in all practical, we wouldn't, none of us would understand it to mean that, even in the way we use the term from day to day. So notice the motive here. You're on a rescue mission. There's a very specific purpose you're going, and it's that he listened to you. you you've seen that he's committing a sin, he's in danger, and you, because of your biblical responsibility, are going to bring him back. That's your goal. Now, something that is implied here that we need to be very careful about, but not specifically stated, but would definitely be stated in other places in Scripture, is that you don't go with just your own opinion about how he behaved. That's not good enough. In other words, you don't go saying, you know, I really think that you shouldn't do this. Because what does it matter what I think? It doesn't really. In that case, it might just be that maybe I'm the one in the wrong. <laughs> Because what I, what I like or doesn't, don't like is not really the issue here. You also don't want to go saying, you know, when you did that, you really made me feel this way. Now, there might be an appropriate place for that, but that is also, that's not the, that's not the central issue. There, there needs to be a sin you're addressing. And of, so, so here's why, when you go to approach a brother or sister, have it plan what you're going to say and have scriptures to back up what you're going to say. Because it is, well, first of all, if you're not on the on authority of scripture, you have nothing to say. And, and B... If you don't have the scripture, you don't have the means that the Holy Spirit uses to convict of sin. And so you have no hope of success in your mission if you're not going with scripture. Now, one thing that's important to notice when we're on this, on this, this uh, principle here that the motive is restoration is that the way this is worded even, just verse 15, is the hope and almost the expectation is that it's going to end here. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. 
And most of the time, that's the way that it works. Because again, the Holy Spirit is with us. We're not alone. It's not, the Holy Spirit is with us as Christ is with us, breaking down those barriers of pride and division that sin has built up. And we're open to hearing how we're wrong. And then when, when, the, when the word of truth is brought in, that double-edged sword that divides body and, and marrow and exposes our hearts, that's what the Holy Spirit uses to bring us to repentance. And so we have great hope and reason to expect for quick restoration. Now, as we think, as we think about this principle number two in terms of covenant membership, this is, we're, we're going to touch back on this a little bit later, but I just want you to kind of see where I'm, where I'm coming from and where, where this is starting to form an idea here, is that it makes logical sense that if you're going to restore a brother, if you're going to gain your brother back, as this scripture says, it implies that at some point, their profession of faith was affirmed by you or by the church. Now again, we're going to firm this up a little bit later and that you are mutually responsible to bring him back when he strays. How do you know who your brother is? We talked about that a little bit last week. You believe he's a believer, and you're going to bring him back. Again, we'll touch on that again. But, but the main point is, if you see a brother that you have affirmed, or that the church has affirmed, in their profession of faith, if you see them acting in such a way that contradicts that, alarm bells should be going off and you have a responsibility to go and confront that sin so that we can again confirm our brotherhood. So, the right motive is restoration. Now we're going to go on to principle number three. The motive is restoration and it's related very directly to principle number three, which is the right approach. Your motive will determine your approach. And that is, so we're going to do another, if you're, writing, if you're taking notes, the right approach, colon, I'm sitting that way because I, it, it doesn't, if I'm not clear, it might be a little muddy. The right approach is as private as possible. The right approach, colon, as private as possible. We see this in verse 15 first. We see it throughout these verses, but where Jesus makes the point to say to his disciples, go and tell him his fault, it doesn't stop there between you and him alone. Why would Jesus make that emphasis? Well, the main point here is clear. Don't involve more people than is absolutely necessary. We don't glory in exposing each other's sins to other people. Because our motive is one of love to bring repentance and reconciliation and restoration and not shame, that's not our goal, then we won't involve more people than is absolutely necessary to accomplish that goal to get that result. And in addition to that, this is the most effective, efficient way to root out sin at its core. See, if I go to another person and tell them about your sin, what does that do to get sin out of the church? So your, your goal is also the purity of the church because you know that the best way and the way that God has ordained for sin to be gotten rid of is to go privately first. Now, I want to take a moment, because I think this bears a little bit of time here, taking a little bit of time on this. Notice what this prohibits. I think we have to pay very, very, very careful attention to this, because I think that we, we don't do this a lot more often, maybe, than we think we do. So I want, to notice, I want us to notice what this prohibits as a means of dealing with sin. Number one, gossip. Gossip. 
Instead of involving another person and spreading rumors and destroying reputations of that person, you go directly to him. This promotes trust. Gossip promotes division. Remember we talked in Ephesians about unity. One of the best ways to destroy unity is to talk to people about other people. So it prohibits prohibits gossip. It also prohibits bitterness from arising in your own heart. Because remember, in, in the direct context of this, now there are, we talked last week about how this, is, this also can be expanded to cover sins of all kinds, but in the direct context here, it's talking about personal sin, sin that they committed against you. And so it, it, by going to the person, it prohibits bitterness. We are not allowed to have bitterness in our hearts toward a person. I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we, someone said something to us that, that was not said in a kind way, or it was, um, it was, it was harsh, it was angry, and we're like, well, I... I don't have to go. I can get over this myself. And yet, as time goes on, we realize I'm really not dealing with this very well myself. I think that the, um, I think that it, that the principle in Leviticus 19 is important here. Last week, it was in your discussion questions, and it was actually a wrong reference. Someone informed me. But this is what Leviticus 19.17 says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Okay, so we... This is is the right context, right? You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall reason frankly with him rather than hating him in your heart, lest you incur sin because of him. So God warns us that by, by hating each other in our heart and not going and reasoning frankly with our brother, we actually incur sin because we're adding our own sin of bitterness and anger to that that was originally committed. And so now we're guilty as well. So this direct and private approach guards against a variety of ungodly approaches, namely bitterness and gossip. Now let's go on. If you try to reconcile privately and he doesn't listen, what are you supposed to do? Verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus quotes a principle that is very commonly quoted throughout the Old Testament of how matters of justice, matters of, um, of courts and appeals and things were all to be, con- any accusation was to be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now what does this do? Well, it does several things. First, it establishes fairness. One person's word against another person's word is really hard to come to a fair conclusion about. It's not very helpful to have one person's word against another. It also indicates that, that this sin that you're seeing in a person, if you think, if you think uh, the implications of this, this is going to have to be something that by taking one or two witnesses, they're going to be able to see. So what does that automatically limit? You're probably not going to pursue this route about one little thing they said one time that made you mad. Because what is one or two witnesses going to do? So we're starting to see hints that this is serious, ongoing sin that witnesses would be able to see. Um, Second, so it ensures fairness, but second, it ensures that you have a biblical basis for the charge because you can demonstrate to, to the person and to the witnesses that what you're saying is from Scripture, like we talked about earlier. And then third, it, it, it's, some, it's for the benefit of the person you're confronting because it shows them, okay, this is, this is serious. Now we're, 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 we're heading down the Matthew 18 road. 
And I know that, that that's, that's serious. There must be something in my life that I need to really deal with here. Now, just a, a really quick word on the idea of witnesses. Think carefully about who you bring with you. Think carefully about who you would take with you to be your witnesses. Don't bring people that, that don't have a very good reputation. Because again, the, the idea here in by Im, implicitly is that, that if necessary, they would bear witness to it before the church. So you're going to want to want have spiritually mature people that are not going to take sides because they have, they have bias to you or the other person. People that are known for telling the truth, committed to Christ and his word above all things. Maybe not your best friend. Someone who also maybe would have some wisdom and insight for the situation because again, the goal is it doesn't have to come, have to come before the church. And if, you can, if that person can maybe speak it in a way that would, that would really help resolve the situation, that's who you would want to go with you. Just, those are just a few ideas of, of what that might look like. Again, this is so important as we talk about this that we remember the goal here is not to kick somebody out of the church. That's not the goal. The goal is that at every step, there might be a little bit more weight to the argument that would bring that person back, that the Holy Spirit would use to convict of sin and bring to repentance. Now, before we go on to the fourth principle, I know I've added a lot of by the ways on this point, but I think this is really important for us to think about as well, is that there's no timeline given here. All that we're given is a pattern. Jesus doesn't say, if he doesn't listen to you immediately and the next day he's completely changed, go and bring another witness or two. That isn't what he says. He says if he doesn't listen to you. So there's some flexibility. Again, if you're going to expect repentance, that might take some time. And so you need to bear with the person. It might take several times of going to them. Yeah, you did it again. You did it again. You did it again. And because again, we're not, the goal isn't to kick somebody out. The goal is to restore them. And so we want to, we want to give some flexibility here. Not all sins are equally urgent. There will be some where if it doesn't, if it's not immediate, it needs to go before the church or, you know, it needs to proceed very quickly. Matters of, um, you know, that would, that would bring great disrepute on the church if it was found out, you know, abuse or, um, you know, marital infidelity or, or things like that, that would, you know, those are on like the, the big scale, but some things are not that way. We'll talk a little bit more about that later as well. So now we come to the last principle, and this is where I've kind of hurried through the first, those second and third ones because this is, where, this is where the difficulty comes and the part that just makes us squirm a little bit because this seems uncomfortable, and it is. I'm calling this fourth principle the last resort, colon, excommunication. The last resort, excommunication. When all else fails... When every effort to bring a sinner to repentance has failed and that person is still continuing on in their sin, then what Jesus requires is some drastic measures. Let's read again, beginning in verse 17, about the middle of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to the church, oh, I'm sorry, beginning of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I want to stop there for now. We'll get to verse 18. But I want to stop there because there's a lot in that verse that requires digging into. So notice, let's recap the situation here so that we're all on the same page. You've tried confronting your brother or your sister about a sin. He hasn't listened. So then you brought along one or two other godly, upstanding, reputable Christians with you 
to resolve the situation, and he still won't listen, and that is, he won't repent. So what should be evident that what happened, that is what, what should be evident is that what's happening in this situation is not, again, some one-time sin that somebody committed that, that you were offended by. What's being reflected here is a stubborn, hard heart that is refusing to listen to the truth and is persisting in some sin that is evident to you and several others. So this is, this is a big deal. And, and even this point doesn't happen a lot in the church. But it can. Jonathan Lehman has written a short book on, on covenant membership, and he's given a helpful way to understand what kinds of sins these are. So we can put a little bit of a framework around, okay, this is all kind of ambiguous. Um, and they're all from Matthew 18 here. First of all, sins that are outward. Sins that are outward. In other words, they're, they're evident to anybody who looks at the situation. You're not, you're not bringing this charge on a heart attitude because that, that's not necessarily, that's really subjective. You're bringing, you have some outward observable sins because, that you and several witnesses can see. All right? Um, second, sins that are serious. Now, of course, we all know that all sin is serious, right? But there are some sins that will bring greater, that, that are less common, that will bring greater disrepute on the church if they are not dealt with this way. For example, let me get, I know as soon as I say that, you know, maybe you'll be like, whoa, 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 what? But let me give you an example. So let's say that there is, um, there's a case of marital infidelity. There's a spouse cheating on a spouse, and that person is unrepentant. That needs to be dealt with in a different way than someone who is hooked on porn and is looking for help. You see what I mean? Those, those require two completely different approaches. Or, let's take another one. A husband who spoke harshly to his wife once versus a husband who verbally and emotionally and, possibly, and maybe even physically abuses his wife and his family regularly. Can we agree that those are two different levels of seriousness? And they should be dealt with differently. And then third, um, sins that are unrepented of. So sins that are persistent and the person refuses to repent of. That becomes obvious after you've had repeated attempts at reconciliation and restoration and it hasn't happened. So what happens then? Well, according to verse 17, you tell it to the church. In other words, the matter is no longer private and it shouldn't any longer be kept private. It needs to come before the church. And that's because this sin is going to start spreading. 1 Corinthians 5 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump talking about sin in the church. It needs to be gotten rid of because it's dangerous. In that case, you need to make it known to the whole church. And by the way, that doesn't mean gossiping until everybody in the church knows about it. It needs to be made to the whole church when they're gathered together in public. Now, that, that's the idea of scripture. Could it be done in an email? Maybe. But, what, but there's, there's some other... Um, there are some other scriptures that we'll look at in a moment, but what the point that I'm trying to make is there is a decisive, specific moment when this sin is revealed to the church, this person is sinning in this way, and they need our help. And so the, the whole church is rallied together to confront this sin and to beseech this person, to, to exhort this person to return to the Lord. So for example, here's the, there, there are some in the epistles Paul has to talk about some of these issues. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is what Paul writes in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, 
Is it fair to say we've got the same situation going on here? For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, the church. Now remember, he's talking to Timothy, who's a pastor here. So that the rest may stand in fear. So we've got a a double-sided purpose going on here. One is restoration, and the other is as a warning. That the church does not tolerate sin. Ongoing, serious, persistent, unrepented sin is not tolerated. Now, I want to take a moment here at at this point to raise a question. Who is the church? Who is the presence of all? Who would that be? Is it everybody who happens to be in the church on Sunday morning? Visitors too? Are they supposed to be a part of this? Are they supposed to be exhorted to exhort the sinner? What if, uh, the, what if, you know, let's say we were not in the age of, of, of uh, all this communication that we have, and let's say that some of the most important people, some of, the most, some of the pillars of the church, you could say we're not there on that morning you happen to confront the sin. My point is, I'm using a little bit of absurdity because we can all answer those questions, but I'm using a little bit of absurdity to illustrate what I think is a very important point, which is the church here seems to indicate a very clearly defined body of believers who are committed to the biblical gospel and who are responsible to admonish another brother or sister who is straying from it. Again, we'll return to this later. I'm just picking up hints as we go. So, what happens then if this person who is committing an outward, serious, and unrepentant sin won't even listen to the entire church? Again, remember, this is, this is flexible because sometimes that might require giving it a period of time to show that there is repentance. Other times, as in the case of a, an affair or something like that or a false teaching, it better stop now. And if there's not repentance, we'll see it immediately. So there's some flexibility. But what happens if, in the appropriate time period, it is obvious that this person has not repented even with this measure taken? Well, this is what we call the last resort, what has commonly be called, been called throughout the history of the church, excommunication. Excommunioning, cutting off from communion with the Lord and with each other. And most cases don't get this far, and we can thank the Lord for that. But once in a while, they do. And when they get that far, there needs to be a solution because that cannot exist in the life of someone who claims to be a believer. It cannot or we bring great, great dishonor on the name of the Lord. So this is what Jesus tells us, beginning in the middle of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, to Jesus' audience, the idea would have been clear. Treat them as an outsider and not one of you. The tax collectors were sinners. Now, of course, we know Jesus saved tax collectors, but that doesn't mean they weren't sinners. They were, they, were, um, they were those who had forsaken the principles of the law of Moses. They were living in sin. They were greedy. They were, they were not righteous. They were not one of the Jewish people as God had called the Jewish people to be, or a Gentile, which is somebody completely outside of, of the Jewish nation. Now, of course, there's been some developments in redemptive history since then, but we can see what we need to do is we need to see what it meant to them, which is basically treat them as not one of you and then take it into our context. 
the context of the church. Treat them as not one of you. In other words, remove your affirmation of their profession of faith. Before all this happened, there must have been a time where the church approved of their profession of faith. Gave it approval. Yes, you believe in the biblical gospel. Yes, you seem to be truly a disciple of Christ. And now you're called to revoke that. And here's why. By refusing to give up his sin, his life is not matching up with what he says, and the reason to believe him has been taken away. Because there is no biblical category for a persistent, ongoing, serious sin in the life of a believer. And there is no evidence. The fruit is gone. In 1 Corinthians 5, I would encourage you to to keep a finger in Matthew and turn to 1 Corinthians 5 because we're going to be coming back to this for a couple of minutes here towards the end. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is instructing the church at Corinth to implement church discipline in a particular case. There's a man who has been committing gross, serious, atrocious sexual immorality. And this is what he writes, beginning in verse 4. We see exactly the pattern that Jesus has laid out here for us. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're to to deliver him over to Satan. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, think about it. Who does the Bible refer to as being the ruler of the world? In whose power does the whole world lie under? The evil one, Satan. But when Christ saves a person, they are transferred out of that kingdom and into the kingdom of his beloved son, which is represented by the church. And then they receive all of those benefits of Christ's kingdom. They are no longer of the world. They are now of God. So to deliver him over to Satan means he's not being treated as part of the kingdom of God anymore. He's being turned out into the world where his sin is leading him to show him this is what you're going to suffer if you continue down this path. Now, if we jump down to verse 9, because again, turn him over to Satan, that's really ambiguous. I mean, we can understand theologically what that means, but practically, what does that mean? Jump down to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he may, okay, don't associate with sexually immoral people, but now listen to what he says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. You're supposed to associate with them. You're supposed to bring them the gospel just like Jesus did. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. You're not supposed to stay away from any of them. Again, in the right context. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Wow. So, we have to understand from this that what Jesus means when he says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector does not mean don't 
that does not mean that, well, there's a, there's a different category. Okay, there's a different category for someone who has never professed Christ and is acting like the world and someone who has professed Christ and is still professing Christ and is acting like the world. There's a different category because we are to go to these people and bring them the gospel, but, but what do we talk about? We talk about the gospel. We talk about you should come to Christ and that's now what our conversations with that brother need to look like. And if, and if you're getting together and treating him like a brother, and having those warm, affectionate conversations that we love and have with one another, then you're in sin and you're partaking and approving of his sin. When you talk to that brother, it has to be about his sin. And if he's not willing to talk about it, then you don't even eat with him. If he's not willing to repent of it, that's how serious this is taken. This is not just Galatians. This is not just in a situation of sexual immorality. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 3, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is, not walk, who is walking in idleness. Idleness. If you remember back when we studied 2 Thessalonians last year, that was a common topic. The people were lazy. They were idle. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Jump down to verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed. We're not used to doing this, are we? Now, again, there's not a lot of situations that require this. The question is, do we have the structures in place that if it were to come to this, that we would be able to do this in any meaningful way? For the purity of the church. Now, in case we're tempted to think that this sounds harsh or terrible, we must remember two very important things. Number one, the purpose is still restorative. The purpose is still that that person repent of their sin. Even though we have to remove our approval or our affirmation of their profession of faith, our hope and our confidence is that they really are still believers and that the Lord will use this discipline to bring them back to him. That's still the hope. And I can demonstrate that to you from both of these passages. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let his flesh be destroyed by the world so that his spirit may be saved. And then in, in that passage I just read from 2 Thessalonians, he's calling the person a brother. He says that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. So Paul isn't even necessarily believing that that person is not, not, a, not, a, not a believer. The confidence is that this approach will bring back any truly saved person, and it will put out from you any who is truly not saved. Because again, we sin, and sometimes sin can be really serious, even in the life of a believer. And this is the way that we bring them back to repentance. And beyond that, let's remember this too, that regardless Regardless what else, our first priority would be, let's remember that not hurting somebody's feelings is not as important as maintaining Christ's reputation in his church. That is our goal. Now, we're almost done, but we have one more really, really, really important verse that we have to talk about. Verse 18. So, before we, before we read it again, all of what Jesus brings up here 
is something that I think we forget as Christians, especially Western Christians, autonomous Christians, Christians that love individual liberty. We tend to forget this, and it's the issue of authority. What Jesus says here in verse 18 is that the church has the authority and the responsibility to approve or deny someone's profession of faith. We don't like that. Don't I get to choose whether I'm a believer or not? Well, not necessarily, according to verse 18. A church has the authority and even the responsibility to say, yes, we believe you, or no, we don't believe you. And if we do believe you, we're going to treat you as a believer. And if we don't believe you, we're going to treat you as an unbeliever. And it's going to be very clear who's who. Verse 18, after talking about putting him out of the church, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that verse by itself doesn't tell us a whole lot, does it? If you've never read Matthew 16, you're reading this and you're like, what? Like, how does that fit into the context? It's super important, so please flip back with me to Matthew 16, where Jesus first said these words. I want you to see this for yourself. In this passage, Jesus has asked his disciples, who is it you say that I am? Or he first said, who do, who do other people say that I am? And they say, some say Moses, some say Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Moses. Moses isn't one of them. I don't know where that came from. So he asked, who do, you, who do people say that I am? In other words, this is the important thing. Who do, you say, who do the other people say that I am? And they have all these false answers. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? This is the center of Jesus' teaching. Who is Jesus? And this is what Peter says, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By the way, Church is used twice by Jesus, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Never again. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now here we go, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you're right. You are right. And you did not come up with that yourself. Heaven, my father in heaven has revealed that truth to you, that I am the Christ, the son of God, the Christ, the way of salvation. And on on that rock, now we could spend a lot of time on this verse, but that's not today's sermon. On that rock, that is, you and people like you who profess the true gospel that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and all that I teach, on you, I will build my church, on that solid bedrock of doctrine of who I am. And on you, Peter, and those whom you represent, I will build my church. And then he talks about giving him the keys of the kingdom so that he can bind and loose what is bound and loosed in heaven. Now, again, we don't have time to get into the full implications of that this morning. 
That's for another time. But at least one aspect of what that means here is we have to assume what he says two chapters later, quoting this, which is his church is going to be built and to prevail against the gates of hell. And part of how that's going to happen, brothers and sisters, we have to get this, is by the church's affirmation or denial of individuals' professions of faith. Based on their behavior. Now, of course, that authority is not supreme. That authority is given by Jesus, and it has to adhere to the gospel of Jesus as Jesus presented it. So we don't, we don't, we don't hold to a Roman Catholic doctrine that the church can pronounce people saved or not saved, or that this resides with the Pope. We certainly do not believe that. But it's only on the authority of Jesus that we can make these judgments, but make them we must. We must bind and we must loose. We have the great joy and the great privilege of throwing open the doors of the kingdom by preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And we have the responsibility to close the doors to those who don't receive it or those who are denying it by their words or their lifestyle. No, this is not for you. I hope that how this relates to covenant membership is obvious. As I've spoken, it's become maybe more clear. If we are ever to meaningfully and effectively put someone out of the church for the purpose of discipline, there has to have been a way that they were officially in to begin with. Now, as I spoke last week, who does this who does this have mostly to do with? It has to do with all of us, but those who have, who have been here for years and years and years and years and years and everybody knows and everybody has, you know, everybody, everybody knows that person is a committed member here. But what about everybody else? What about those who have been coming for a year? And let's just say there's a sin going on in their life that we don't know about. And yet they're going around telling people they're Christians and they come to this church and that we approve of them and they're one of us. But because they never get invested, we don't, we don't know. And Christ's name is being brought into disrepute nonetheless. There has to be an official in to be an official out. And even more basic than that, as churches, we are responsible to know someone's profession of faith. Know what it is. What do you believe? What are you committed to? And then affirm it. And that affirmation is supposed to be a source of blessing to that person. In other words, I, I'm not just me saying that I'm a Christian. This church who believes the Bible and preaches the Bible, this church believes me. I have a credible profession of faith. And then the church is responsible to call attention to it when behavior starts to act out of line with what they profess. And that's how we grow in holiness. And it's for our good. We must be formal members of a church because the church alone is the entity to which Christ, by his authority, has granted the keys of the kingdom. The local church. We aren't allowed to be lone rangers. We must be under the authority of a local church. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to end as I began. Jesus Christ passionately loves his church. 
And that's why he cares so much that she must be pure and holy. And if this is in his heart, as it is, as we've seen this morning, then should it not also be in our heart? Let's pray that it will be. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us. Sinners. Sinners that we even need to be having this conversation because we know, we know that apart from your grace, we will all be committing the most heinous of sins. And yet, by your protecting, guiding power, we're confident of better things. Thank you for revealing to us, Lord, a much richer, deeper, more meaningful love than the perversions of it, of that word that we see in the world around us. Thank you that, that, that truth and love are not opposed. Truth and love are not opposed, Lord. They're necessarily and absolutely bound together in you, our Savior. Thank you for your Spirit's work in us to convict us of our sin. Thank you for bringing us into your family who help us grow that way. Make us holy, Lord, we pray. That is our desire. Help us go out from the midst of a sinful world and be separate as we grow in likeness to Christ. And may Christ and the beauty of his gospel be lifted up and honored as we obey your commands in this and in every area. Amen.